Hi, I'm Simo Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. And thank you. Can I just start with a thank you? We've just passed eight and a half thousand downloads. I mean, that's amazing. It really is. So thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying what we're doing. And without you, really, there would be no point. So big thanks from myself and the whole team for subscribing. It's, it's great you're doing that. We've got a, an interesting story later on to explore around I suppose the topic that we always seem to come back to, the reason being it's that important, batteries. So that would be the main subject of the podcast. But I wanted to start uh, with um, a couple of things that have happened this week, which I think are quite interesting. One is a story that you'll see on Energy Lab News, our sister platform, that Save the Children has turned down a 750 grand donation from an oil and gas company, Neptune Energy, for their work in Ukraine. Now, They've turned this down because they don't want to use any uh, money specifically from companies that are involved in fossil fuels. I get the stance. I really do. I do wonder, though, you know, money at this present for the children that are suffering is is a is vital. So the principles are good and I suppose it is the right way. But I I just wonder about that one. Uh, I think, you know, there is a time for morals. and, And right now, in my view, I think there's an element of, you know, let's let's take the money. If it's money that's coming from sources that aren't great, yes, obviously we should be like that, but the need is is exceptional. Uh, the other thing that's that's happened this, this week, if you look at what's been going on, is lots of repercussions of, of Ukraine. And the latest has been Total Energies, who were criticised by the Church of England, if you remember, last week. So if you check our story on VisionetZero.com, you'll see that it's now committed to stop buying oil and gas products from Russia by the end of this year. Now, given in mind how much it uh, takes from Russia, that is very significant. Uh, it's going to, it's, I mean, it's a sh- shareholder in a l- number of non-state-owned but Russian companies, but it wants to suspend all of its uh, activity. It said that basically it will be doing this because it wanted to show that despite headlines that show, uh, you know, perhaps Total in a, in a bad light. It has decided to do this on its own. And the thing you have to admire, you've got to be, you've got to be honest about this. You know, companies are taking hits. They are taking massive hits. Um, Gazprom, the UK arm, you know, there are rumours that it is struggling and may cease to trade. Now, in a way, that's a fair cop for, for what it is. But for the people who work for Gazprom, were overwhelmingly uh, British here, uh, British company, uh, obviously owned by a Russian parent company. This shows you the intricacies of what's going on. Today, at the time of recording, we're still awaiting for the Chancellor's spring statement, and we're going to suffer. Right? There's, no, there's no two ways of, of dressing this up. We are going to suffer. But as you know, someone reported this week, uh, you know, the suffering that we have in terms of what we may pay, a Ukrainian voice on social media wrote to me and said, that is nothing to the suffering we're going through for our children and our lives. So yes, I think we will look at this. Where does this all leave um, the net zero uh, conundrum, the net zero, some people are saying, you know, the reset or whatever. Well, I think, you know, a story that kind of um, really pushes on, on what's going on it is a report that came out from the Tyndall Centre, 
is a very respected center of climate change, which said, we must keep moving forward on net zero, not try and explore more oil and gas sources as we try and get away from um, Russian oil and gas. And it says richer countries, in, in a nutshell, it says, must end production by 2034, okay? So it, with, within 12 years to keep the world on track. And I think that's fair. You know, I think that is fair. You need a bridging time. You've got to move us away. And gas is still the bridging fuel for us as we move to more nuclear, more renewables, more thermal, solar, uh, tidal, whatever it is. But we need to do that. And I think, you know, by doing that, by getting to that target, at least we give ourselves a chance. And it's the richest countries, according to the report, which must count, output the most. And that includes, obviously, um, you know, ourselves, the US, Canada, Australia, all of these nations. Um, poor countries supply just one ninth of global demand, and but they must cut back too. So you can see that there'll be a, a global shift now. So my hope is for all the tragedy that's going on in Ukraine, we start to move towards a weaning off of fossil fuels. If we use them, we use them from our own sources rather than from despotic regimes. We make sure that we use carbon capture with anything we're doing across the planet. I really hope that steps up over the next few years and that we do manage to get ourselves back on track. But most importantly, obviously, is that this war ends. The final thing I wanted to talk about um, before we talk about the actual podcast is pollution. Now, in all of this, we always talk about emissions and we seem to think about kind of emissions and point of kind of where it's at and how we're looking at it. But actually, the basic old school thing that I learned in the 70s about air pollution is a massive factor. And it's a really interesting story that you'll be able to read again on Future Net Zero about how excess air pollution in India is reducing its ability to generate renewable energy through solar. Because what's happening in the sunlight is being cut out. And this is incredible. So a report says that India lost a third of its solar potential between 2001 and 2018 because of the huge levels of air pollution. It's a report by the Indian Institute of Technology. And this is the real killer, right? We can have all the technology we want, but if we're continuing to use particulates, particularly in, in developing nations, where the diesel fuels are there, people are still burning coal, even for cooking, you know, these particulates cause immense problems in the atmosphere, and they act as a, as a, as a haze, as a, a block. So, you know, Yes, it's good we start to invest in more renewables. Yes, it's good we start to do more nuclear. Yes, it's good we wean ourselves off this stuff. But we've got to start to clean our nations up, particularly developing nations. We have to clean their air up. Because as you can see, in the case of India, which has so much sunshine, if half of its potential has been smothered, think about what it, that means in terms of what it's doing in, in trying to back up that misgeneration by using fossil fuels so lecture over but i do think you know the old school thing about looking at things like air pollution very important now on to the podcast this week and i caught up with charlie welch who's based in america california who is the ceo of a company called zapbat 
Now, plenty of battery companies always come and talk to me and say, can I be featured on the Net Hero podcast? And I kind of generally turn most of them out. But this was very interesting because this was uh, a story, as you'll listen, uh, Charlie is using, it's almost reminds me, if you're old enough, the whole kind of uh, Betamax and VHS thing, right? It's about a type of battery that already exists that we don't really use much of. Uh, and it's um, uh, lithium titanate, and it's different to the lithium ion batteries we use. Now, Charlie reckons it lasts longer, it's more powerful, it's cleaner and better for the environment. So why haven't we used it? We haven't used it because it's been used in very big, heavy duty uh, industries. But he believes it's something that could be transformational for the way that we use batteries in the future. Have a listen to this. Now, the thing about um, where we're going with, particularly, I suppose, the, all the bloodshed in Ukraine is showing us that many people are saying that the, the dash to gas is back on, we need to find our own fuels. I still disagree. I still think that the future is the net zero future, and it is a future where we get cleaner energy. And one of the things that would be very, very important is how we provide batteries we've discussed this many a time on the net hero podcast but how do we provide batteries that will provide longer life that will be cheaper that will last longer and will be smaller because as you can see the revolution when it comes to motion is very much going to be not just on four wheels but on two wheels as, as well if you're anywhere in kind of most modern cities uh, around the world, you see people on those little scooter things, which I can't stand. You know, electric bikes uh, are everywhere in, in, in England and they're taking over in vast parts of the world. In places like Asia, people are trying to get rid of their, their mopeds or their tuk-tuks and they're trying to use batteries. So how do we make sure that we have a system where we bring that kind of technology to the masses at a price point that's right with the right kind of uh, technology that it's not damaging the planet, trying to do the best we can. Well, there's a company called Zapbat that has got an idea about this. It's kind of a battery as a service sort of solution. So joining me on this episode of Net Hero is Charlie Welch, the uh, co-founder of Zapbat. How are you, Charlie? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Now, you're um, you're based in West Coast. You're based in California or where are you based? Yep, we're based in North County, San Diego, so Southern California. You're in the tech world, the tech world. Give us the idea behind Zapbat. So Zapbat has a very simple idea in that, you know, new battery technology does not need to be a so-called miracle chemistry. There's a lot of technologies out there that have been overlooked for a long time. And we believe lithium titanate is one of those key technologies. It's been around for almost two decades. It's kind of proven its paces in the military and oil and gas industries, but initially it didn't get traction in the key drivers of battery technology like cell phones or automotive. And so it kind of got pushed to the wayside. But what we've been able to achieve with our lithium titanate systems is a battery that can fully charge in 15 minutes, which is a lot faster than typical battery. At that charge rate, we can still achieve 15,000 cycles out of the battery, which is 25 plus years. Uh, which is a lot longer than a typical lithium ion will last. And it's considered what's called an inert chemistry. So 
it has zero chance of self-thermal runaway. So the battery on my desk I can short circuit, can hammer a nail straight through, uh, and it's it's completely safe. So what we feel is that it's a faster, longer lasting, safer battery that both impacts a business economics, economically, yeah. by lasting longer, and also their carbon footprint of having a battery that they invest in is going to last as long as uh, as long as possible. So as long they, as their company's in business. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, t t Tell us the basics. So people would have heard of lithium iron, but I've certainly not heard of lithium titanate. What, what is lithium iron, first of all, and what, what's this other material? Yeah, so typical lithium ion uh, has been kind of lumped into three chemistries. It's lumped into lithium cobalt oxide, uh, lithium nickel manganese cobalt, and then uh, now kind of we're seeing lithium iron phosphate. And so lithium titanate is a nanocrystal of titanium, which does a really, really good job at moving electricity and electrons very, very quickly. So it is still in the lithium ion class, but it was originally developed to be a safer and longer lasting alternative uh, for industries like what infrastructure and military that were putting a lot of money into, uh, you know, these battery systems they wanted to last for decades. Yeah. I mean, lithium iron, basically, I think, it, correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of just basically means sort of a rechargeable battery with something that's got lithium in it. Yeah, most people know the, the, exactly. the element lithium. But what it binds to or what it works with can, can be varied. So you're talking about cobalt. You're talking about, so these batteries, you said 20 years they've been around. Is that right? Mm -hmm. and, and sort of would they look the same? I mean, you wouldn't know, would you, what, what kind of battery you're looking at? So, so why have they been, you know, it sounds because I'm quite old. sounds like the old kind of Betamax and VHS thing. So what, why have they never taken off where we've all heard of sort of lithium cobalt, lithium mine batteries that we use in all our devices, including the PCs we're talking on as we, as we do this interview. Mm -hmm. So the two industries that were driving battery tech and kind of pushing where the industry was going was really cell phones and then a little bit of automotive about, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And so what happened was any chemistry that was slightly outside of those specs uh, got no attention from a software side, from an electronic side. So if I buy a lithium titanate cell today, there's no chips on earth that are designed to work specifically with a lithium titanate cell. Right. As we're lithium cobalt, I can just buy it. And because it's gotten so much attention, it has all the support infrastructure. Ah. It's like having, you know, you can have a great bucket of water, but you also need to have great plumbing and a great sink to get yeah. the use out of it. And so a lot of times that's somewhat discounted for batteries about how important that is. And, you know, really lithium titanate's is one of, among a lot of chemistries that just didn't get the same attention of the support structure um, around it. it. Where is it used now? You said a little bit about kind of, you know, it has been used in the military. Is it, is it still in use? Yeah, so it's in places, you know, in Japan, it's used for large infrastructure. Uh, it's, you know, in use in Japan and certain military projects. The US has used it for infrastructure and oil and gas applications of, you know, large battery banks meant to provide backup power for certain things. And then the military uses it, obviously, for a variety of things, for its stability uh, and its kind of long lifetime. But it's it's a very proven system. I don't love the term miracle battery. I don't like the term miracle anything. I think if anyone's trying to sell you a miracle, whatever it is, I well, would then you bet God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, this is a much more pragmatic approach, which is that to hit net zero, you know, we need better technologies today, you know, not yeah. big promises that are coming 10, 20 years from now. What's the, what's the sort of footprint? Because this is an interesting thing, right? And this is an argument that lots of people have, and I've kind of had it with myself and with other people, which is, you know, 
we know that moving away from fossil fuels is the right thing to do, but are we just changing the planet from digging up the ground for things that are black to digging up the ground for things that are silver and metallic colored? You know, mm-hmm. people talk about what's going on in Africa and we all know that. People are talking about what's going on in vast swathes of China and other places. And, you know, the resources are element, you know, one of the things that sadly Ukraine is full of is, is, is manganese and cobalt, things like that. So the titanium that this, these batteries are made of, you know, what's the kind of ecological impact of trying to dig this stuff up? I didn't even know where you get it from. Yeah, so titanium comes from kind of two big major areas. There's a lot of, there's a big deposit in Canada and then uh, in China as well, uh, with a little bit in Russia, um, you know, to be upfront, that is not a huge portion of it, but Canada and China are the primaries. The key is that, you know, or what I like to talk about with friends is, I feel like when batteries were kind of introduced or lithium ion was kind of becoming popular, we kind of entered this like fast fashion era of batteries, which was that, you know, we put all this energy and CO2 into producing a battery, but then we said, yeah. you know, we're just going to toss it when it's done after a year or two. And yeah, I think which is the real thing that people can't stand. Yeah. It's very unfortunate. And so I think the key is what makes lithium titanate so powerful or other long lasting chemistries is if we're putting all this energy, you know, mining, shipping, all these raw materials into a battery, that battery should last as long as is possible and then be as recyclable as possible. Um, because I think there's really big breakthroughs there. But I think the key is we shouldn't rely on having to recycle something every two years or every three years. It should be maybe every 10 to 15, 20 years, then okay. we go through a whole new process. Yeah. So, so, so what you're saying is the mining part is still going to be, you know, damaging. You know, you've got to get it from my human ore. Yeah. So you've got to dig this stuff up. But what you're saying is the lifespan of the battery and its ability to be reused means that initial damage is not, you're not going back three, four years time to dig up some more. Exactly. So like the battery at its peak, lithium titanate has been tested to 45,000 cycles. So if that's a cycle a day, that's almost a hundred years, which is ridiculous. But the point is, you know, we want to be able, if you're investing all this time and energy into something you want to use, you know, both from a footprint side and a, and a cost side, we really have to think about what that long-term, you know, benefit is. Where is this technology in your mind then? So you've come up with an idea that this thing, which is big, huge energy project stuff, big military, big installations, big infrastructure, you kind of think we could stick it in a, a car or an EV bike or a moped or something like that. How? Why? Absolutely. Yeah, I know we can. Uh, we are sending out our first e-bike and micromobility systems this year that are going to be uh, live and on the market. You know, the reason why is we've built the equivalent of a universal adapter for lithium titanate that essentially allows it to imitate or mimic any other lithium ion chemistry. So there's a, not to get too technical, but there's a weird things about what battery voltage is and how the system works. And we've built a piece of technology that essentially makes that a much easier integration for a business so that they can buy our e-bike battery plug it in as a one-for-one swap for theirs, and then they get all the benefits of now having lithium titanate battery without having to change anything on their system. Essentially, our innovation is to like take what is all these benefits of lithium titanate and make it a much more consumer-friendly technology as opposed to you know, where it's existed in the big infrastructure side. There's got to be a downside, right? Because otherwise people would have been... What's the downside? Is it more expensive? Is it more difficult to manipulate? It is a little bit more expensive. So 
you know, on average, uh, you know, you're paying probably double for a lithium titanate system. Now, granted, that's up front, not over its lifetime. So we like okay. to show that over its there, lifetime. There we go. There, there's, there's the business people listening going, oh, oh, Charlie, <laughs> I was with you. Uh, but, I'm thinking of, I've got my FD going, uh-uh, why, why am I going <laughs> to invest in things that are going to cost me twice the market rate for a battery? Well, if you look at the original battery-powered cars, I mean, they were far higher than twice the cost of original combustion engine cars. So the cost will come down, but to have any you know, significant change to technology takes a little bit of upfront costs. Um, you know, the, the original Tesla Roadster was over $100,000 and it only went, what was like 100 miles? So I think it'll get there. But, you know, at this point, we want people to pay more for longer lasting technology and then, you know, really see the benefit over the period of time. But where the key gets to cost, because I know this is an important topic for people, is for people like mobility as a service, the, the 15 minute charge time drops their labor cost dramatically. So they're paying for a more expensive battery. Yeah. They're actually saving a lot more money for their business because they don't have to shuffle around batteries that takes five to seven hours to charge. Yeah, understood. Um, I've seen things, you've probably already seen it, right? So I think it's in, whether it's Singapore or somewhere, uh, there was a great video on social media for this guy pulling up in a little moped. He pulls out his battery. He goes to like a, a battery wall, pulls out another one, and that's it, you know, and off you go. And I think that's kind of, you know, I've got an electric car myself, and it's, it's wonderful, but it is a pain in the ass when you have to go and stop and charge, you know, 20, half an hour, maybe more, even when using fast chargers. So what, what's your kind of vision for, for what you're trying to do here then? Yeah, I, I think GoGo Row, like I think you're talking about like the kind of GoGo Row model of yeah. uh, swapping a battery in and out. I think that's a great model. And I think, you know, not to, not to promote ourselves, but I think that's where fast charging uh, like lithium titanium makes sense. Because if you plug that back into the box and it's going to have downtime for another, you know, three to five hours or whatever it is, you know, that's time that somebody could be using it. Um, and as that kind of gets adopted more and more, you know, those boxes are going to become more and more in demand. So I'm a huge supporter of that because I think charge time is a really big pain point. You know, I have, I've had an e-bike and now I have a, a Zapbat powered e-bike and having a battery that charges that fast. Um, and, and the Zapbat is better. <laughs> yeah. It just, it makes it so when you plug something in that takes hours, it just yeah. feels archaic. It's like going from dial-up internet to high-speed Wi-Fi. Like you, once you do it, you just- That's a good one. Going back. So, so, what, so how long does it take now, the difference to charge your bike then from what it used to be? So typically it was about five hours, five to six hours for yeah. the old e-bike. And now it's, if it's completely dead, it's 15 minutes. Wow. 15 minutes. This idea of where we're going in terms of transport. And this is why, you know, with this podcast, and I'm glad you're joining us from America, you know, the States, Europe, you know, most of us look at transport mainly. The car is probably still king. And then we have good public transport in our cities. And obviously, you know, bikes are more of a leisure thing, right? Something we'd like to ride. I mean, I ride a bicycle rather than an electric bike, but, you know, it's kind of a leisure thing or I do it for fitness or whatever. In vast parts of the world, you know, that is the, the most... Uh, affordable form of transport. Now, my family from India, and there are far more people using mopeds than having cars. And certainly, certainly until recently, it was kind of 10 to 1, everyone had a moped rather than a car. But that's going to change. This electric bicycle market, and I know it's one you're interested in, what, what do you think its capacity is for this thing, which is, you know, to make sure that as we transition, we take A, the world with us, but also we take us all with us 
at a place that we can all afford? That's a that's a great question. So, I think I think two things. Uh, one, I think cities, uh, you know, need to think about how they're going to adopt different mobility solutions. Like like you said, I think in India, it's very commonplace to take an e-bike, uh, you know, or or a, a moped from one place to another. But in Southern California, it's still new, and there's certain barriers to that. And I think having the infrastructure in place is going to be incredibly important, you know, to make sure that it's convenient for the rider. And then two, I think it's going to be, you know, a multitude of options for, you know, similarly to automotive where, you know, we don't have only three or four car options. Now, even in EVs, you know, it's going to be not a one size fits all, but I think finding the right micro mobility solutions for businesses and then for individuals and consumers, you know, if they're going to put a money into buying an e-bike, what is the most economical one over the long period of time? And like, what are all the factors for that? So I think it has to be a dual approach so that if I buy an e-bike, I want to be able to get around a city, you know, easy enough. And then I want that yeah. e-bike to be an asset for me for a long time. Yeah. For businesses, and we have a lot of business people listen to this. I mean, there are particularly where we're based in the UK, a lot of people are changing their fleet. You know, they're looking at moving from um, petrol and diesel, gasoline, as you'd call it, to electric mobility where do you see this whole kind of um you know fleet solutions because you you offer this idea of it's kind of battery as a service and we've heard this uh, in fact maybe you could explain it because rather than me give my turn what what do you see as battery as a service for certain businesses they want the upfront benefit of having a faster charging safer battery immediately but to your previous question they don't want to shed the capex of it of buying 10,000 batteries and so what we can offer for those businesses, because our battery has such a long cycle life, is batteries of service where they can essentially adopt that technology while paying $20 a month for their fleet per vehicle to amortize the cost of the battery over time so that they see the, the operational expense reduction from the faster charging and the safety and everything else, but they don't have to eat the large capital expense it would take to retrofit an entire fleet. So and the reason we've done it that way is that because we can maintain such a long cycle life, it's a benefit for us as a business to offer, uh, you know, one, the technology is going to last longer, but two, you know, after that battery is done, and let's say after five years, that business doesn't want that battery anymore, there's still 20 years of life left in that battery. And so, That's, yeah, I get that. So here's, here's the thing. What happens with your battery? So are you saying that you know, your battery will then, you'll take it, you'll give it to someone else who has a different use, such as things like, you know, EV batteries are sometimes being used as home storage batteries, you know, Nissan have done it, Tesla has certainly done it. Or do you see it basically, you just keep recycling this battery until it reaches the end of its lifestyle. And also the second part of this question is, what happens to that at the end of it? Because there is an environmental damage cost of removing all the stuff. What are your plans around that whole circular economy side of things? So we would love to use the battery in secondary applications that are, uh, you know, obviously very similar. So if it could go from one e-bike customer to another, that's absolutely fine with us. The The benefit of having that, uh, you know, like kind of universal adapter technology is that there's nothing like the e-bike battery can technically go in a whole variety of products. It doesn't make it unique to an e-bike battery. So we see the benefit of not only going into secondary 
similar applications, but trying to put it to somewhere else where it have use for the next, you know, five to 10 years or whatever it might be, such as EVs have done with sending them to infrastructure, home storage. And then at the end of life, you know, we're, we do want to focus on a responsible recycling. I think it's still to be figured out, uh, you know, what that looks like yeah. for different chemistries. I think recyclers are now just starting there. And I think since lithium titanate lasts so long, it hasn't uh, had the need to be as recycled. No, it's had to recycle it. That's quite good. <laughs> so uh, I think it's to be to be determined, but uh, it's something that we want to get ahead of, I guess, is behind because I know that it's, it's more important to be proactive, not reactive. Now, you're in this kind of, you know, I don't know if is San Diego is still part of the Silicon Valley, but anyway, whatever, I'm assuming it is, right? So this is where all this great thinking, what, what's the kind of reaction to this sort of stuff, particularly this technology? Because you've got a lot of people there who are real techno geeks who can probably argue far better with you than I could about, you know, the pros and cons of your stuff. What's, what's been the reaction in your community? Mm-hmm. The the two big reactions, you know, there's been a hyper focus on energy density. You've probably read and it's why a lot of these big companies have raised yeah. saying energy density is going to you know save the world and all this stuff. And, you know, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. But we get a lot of reaction of, well, if it's not higher energy density, we don't care. Um, there's been like a hyper focus on that, which has been a challenge. And then I think the second reaction is the, an obsession with dollar per kilowatt hour, which I think is a very strange metric because it doesn't, it assumes you use the battery once it doesn't include cycle life. So it's like, I'm paying a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour up front, but I'm only getting X amount of cycles out of that battery. So yeah. in reality, I'm, I'm actually paying like 40 cents a kilowatt hour every time I use it, as opposed to wanting to pay five cents a kilowatt hour. So, you know, it seems that people have really stuck on these two metrics that, you know, we've had to kind of overcome by showing the, the cost benefit and how batteries of service can affect. But, you know, I think that'll change to your, you know, early question of what happens when battery supply chain starts to get a little bit difficult. And I think the answer is gonna be like, you want the longest lasting battery you can get so that you're not having to deal with the fluctuations of raw materials, you know, as they come in and out of different areas. When we look at where we're going and, you know, this, this whole part that we're sort of, I suppose, we're all in an experiment, aren't we, right? Because we're having the biggest shift uh, probably in 110 years, 115 years, right? So if you look at all that, there'll be things that come and go and technologies that, you know, I'm old enough to remember things like the laser disc and things like, uh, you know, people had this thing called the Sinclair C5 or, you know, even the DeLorean that was used in uh, uh, Back to the Future. You know, the great ideas of where cars would go and things would happen and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, the, the Scion 2 and Blackberries, all these technologies. Would you say that we're really in a bit of a kind of, not a kind of wild west of technologies, but we're all trying different things. Here you are doing this, other people are doing different things. Um, is that a good thing? Or is that kind of just the part of the normal process of as we try and find a technology that eventually is the way we'll go? Hmm, that's a great question. I, so I, I have a kind of a strong personal opinion on this one. I think we're in the beginning of understanding really how we use energy as a society it's yeah. like when we talk about energy density a lot you know i always talk about how you know let's say as a human 
right? I'm not always trying to find the most energy dense food. Like we've kind of hit an equilibrium where yes, yes, we built this way that we can eat and refuel and all this stuff that's just built holistically into our lives. We're not constantly searching for, well, what if I could eat one little pile of food that lasts me a week or something? And I think that we're kind of in a new learning period of being promised that there's miracle solutions out there. And I don't think there is. And I think it's more about understanding holistically what humans on earth need to do and use energy in accordance with how we take care of the planet. And I think we're in the early stages of that where we think certain technology solutions are going to erase a bunch of things. But in my opinion, it's going to take a while to figure out what that full system looks like and not just what's this next kind of drop in the bucket I can do to hopefully make a change, which is very difficult. You know, we've, it's hard to realize kind of what the full system looks like. You know, it's like the grid is very complicated. And the grid will vary from nation to nation as well. Right. Um, before we go, your background is you, you were in aerospace, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in, in applied research at Northrop Grumman Aerospace uh, in, in battery tech, obviously. Okay. Not <laughs> okay. And so uh, looking where you are, I don't know, have you got kids? I don't know. I do not. Not yet. Oh, okay. Right. So if you look at kind of where the next generation will be. Do you think they'll grow up in a very more, um, how do I put it, in a way that actually the, the cost of things isn't about money. It's, the cost of things is about what, 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 the, what it's doing. Because we can see it already you know, with movements, you know, the Greta Thunberg thing and younger people. You know, these e-bikes, maybe old gits like me, I'm in my 50s, maybe I'd have a go at one, but you know, the younger generation will definitely be whizzing around and, and all the mm -hmm. streets of London, it's always generally young people on these things. Um, and some people have adopted it simply because they don't want a car, frankly. And, you know, mm -hmm. they, they like the idea of kind of transport that's kind of a bit human powered, but a bit electric as well. Where do you see all of this going? I kind of agree. And I do see that I think the younger generation will think of the cost of something as not just what's the dollar value to me, but what's the impact. You know, we see obviously consumer trends of people wanting to vote for a certain extent for more sustainable products. And I think there's still a lot to be figured out there. But I would hope that, you know, the younger generation, we set up to have options to say, you know, these are the options we see as moving in the right direction. Uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, how we've kind of gotten to today, you know, the other, besides working in, you know, aerospace, the other job that I do in my spare time is I work for the San Diego Zoo as a wow. contractor and I've worked um, up in the Arctic with polar bears and studying sea ice yeah. and, you know, seeing point blank what the actual, you know, true impact is of, you know, why we care so much about what our footprint is on the earth from that among other species. And I think it's just, we need, to, we need to give options, you know, long time, for a long time, there hasn't been as many options. And I think now we have to design in so that the younger generation can take the reins and decide, you know, what, what are those more valuable options they can take. That's a fair point. Well, look, thanks very much for joining us, uh, Charlie. I think, uh, you know, what you're doing is sounds really interesting. I do think that there is a real, uh, you know, there's a kind of um, technological sort of wave breaking with battery stuff. Nearly every every week I get a story about battery tech, but I think this has been a, a really good one to explore. Thanks so much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Thanks for having me. Great there talking to Charlie. And I, I, I like that. I like the idea of things, you know, if we're going to dig stuff up, let's make sure we don't have to dig stuff up, you know, within two, three years. Let's, let's have these products having a long life. And that is a real part the circular economy.
of the future. And before I go, a fantastic amount of you have signed up, 450 brilliant delegates on the way for the uh, Big Zero show in June. Uh, we've had such a demand that we're going to up the numbers. That's right. So I did have a limit of 500. We're going to be reaching that soon. So we're going to up it. So we're going to up it to 600. So you can apply for your free ticket to come along. Just go to bigzeroshow.com or go to futurenetzero.com and you'll find the link there. Register on Eventbrite for free. Uh, plenty more stuff coming out. Just delighted to announce that we've got uh, the head of sustainability of Talk Talk and the head of flexibility of Octopus Energy coming to join us. Octopus Electric Vehicles actually coming to join us. So we'll have a lot of stuff on the things that matter to you. If you want to get involved in terms of sponsoring, then drop us a line. If you want to come along to the show, then obviously register. And if you have suggestions of things you'd like, then get in touch. Finally, if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, remember the email uh, nethero at futurenetzero.com. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. I'll catch you soon. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.